Hello everyone, Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be covering episode 323, entitled Through the Looking Glass Part 2. This is the 72nd hour of the series, and there are 50 to go. I'm certainly glad to be with everybody again this week, especially after having had some technical difficulties that almost derailed the podcast for this week. Of course, we can't let that happen after 72-plus straight weeks in a row. So with that, let's get into the Wikipedia summary for this episode, or rather for the second half of uh, the Looking Glass 2-parter. Ben and Alex intercept Jack's group. Ben informs Jack that Naomi is not who she says she is, and making contact with her boat will be disastrous for everyone on the island. Ben orders the shooting of Saeed, Jin, and Bernard, and when Jack hears three shots, he attacks Ben and punches him in the face repeatedly, leaving Ben bloody. Unknown to Jack, the three shots are fired into the sand, following early orders from Ben. Rousseau meets her 16-year-old daughter Alex, who was kidnapped by the others shortly after her birth. They then tie Ben up, and the Trek party, now able to get a signal, arrives at the radio tower. Rousseau disables her distress signal, freeing the frequency for Naomi. However, Naomi is knifed in the back by Locke, who threatens to kill Jack if he calls Naomi's boat. Locke cannot bring himself to kill Jack, who communicates with George Minkowski on Naomi's boat. Minkowski tells the survivors they will be sending rescue! At the beach, after hearing only two explosions, Sawyer and Juliet turn back to see if they can help. Hurley, who is not allowed to accompany Sawyer and Juliet because of his weight, drives the van he found onto the beach, and the captives gain the upper hand, killing the remaining others with the help of Sawyer and Juliet. Tom surrenders, but Sawyer shoots him in the chest anyway. In the Looking Glass station, Mikhail arrives and kills Greta and Bonnie, only to be shot through the chest with a spear gun by Desmond, who emerges from a closet inside the station where he, he had hidden after diving down a short time after Charlie did. Getting the code from Bonnie before she dies, the notes to the middle eight of good bi- vibrations by the Beach Boys, Charlie disables the signal jammer and is contacted by Penny Widmore via video transmission. Penny informs Charlie that she did not know Naomi and did not send the boat that Naomi claims to be from. Despite his injury, Mikhail manages to swim out of the station and blasts the window of the jamming room with a grenade, killing himself and flooding the communications room. Charlie locks the door to save Desmond from drowning with him, but before he drowns, Charlie writes in his hand so Desmond can read, not Penny's boat. In the flash-forward story, Jack visits the memorial service for the person he read about and finds himself the only attendee. He contacts Kate and tells her about the memorial service. Kate says that she did not know about it, but she would not have attended even if she did. Jack also talks 
talks about using the golden pass they received to fly across the Pacific Ocean and back every Friday, hoping that he will crash. Jack explains that they should have never left the island and must return. And with that recap now concluded, the final recap of uh, Season 3, let's now get into my thoughts about the episode. This is, of course, a fantastic episode that uh, more than makes up for whatever sins may have occurred during the course of the season. Certainly, uh, you know, I think how far in our past, uh, oh, Echo in the Bear Cave was one of the most sparse episodes that I know I've podcasted. Uh, oh, things like uh, the interminable amount of time spent in, on Hydra Island. Nikki and Paolo, these are all distant, distant memories, and uh, I think that we're the better for it. Anyhow, uh, the episode, if we treat this as a standalone episode, which, uh, again, is not how it was originally presented, but is is the only way to see it now on uh, DVD, Blu-ray, and uh, digitally, uh, so that, you know, all the more reason to treat this as its own episode, but... Uh, it starts with a tense recap of the zippy, action-packed part one. Uh, then angry, bearded, flash-forward Jack, who, of course, on first viewing, we still think it's flashback Jack, uh, who has that mysterious piece of paper. He is searching for something. Uh, he, he, he's clearly uh, not in the best neighborhood. Uh, and, indeed, the inclusion of three black gentlemen on the sidewalk as he pulls up uh, it led to many people wondering if the dead man inside the funeral parlor was Michael. Uh, indeed, once we fully understood this to be a flash forward, uh, of course. Uh, and also, of course, what is that funeral parlor? It is the Hoff's Drawler funeral parlor, the famous anagram for flash slash forward. Uh, darn it, why didn't I try and unscramble that while watching the episode? Ah, those, those lazy days of not watching with you know, uh, phone in hand to, to figure these things out. Uh, and it, it is, of course, uh, the funeral for Locke, as we will learn uh, <laughs> in quite some time. Uh, anyhow, Jack talks to the funeral director, who tells him that no one came to the viewing. Uh, and with his line, friend or family, you might think that that would exclude Michael from your theorizing. Uh, doesn't necessarily appear that Jack would be blood family, but I suppose... Uh, you know, in the, hey, it's it's the heady two thousands where anything was possible. There could have been uh, any uh, any bunch of different ways where he could be related by family. Had it been Michael, which of course it was not. At any rate, Jack declares himself neither friend nor family. Uh, perhaps he's just being difficult, uh, and he stands before the coffin with regret. This is, of course, uh, setting up the great great mystery of season four. Who is the person in the coffin, and how? You know, why is it such a big deal? We'll learn that it is, uh, of course, a very, very big deal indeed. Uh, with that, Jack pops his last pill, and the flash forward ends. By the way, apologies for that bird in the background. I've just closed a few windows, though I don't think it's uh, helping a great deal. I feel uh, feel like I'm Claire at the adoption agency, all all set to do one thing, and fate somehow is getting in my way. For Claire, of course, it was uh, pens that wouldn't write. For me, it's either technical difficulties, and then once those are dealt with, we now have uh, birds in the background. I suppose it's also rather Hurley-esque. You know, the alarm clock is out, the car won't start, 
etc., etc. It's almost as though somebody's trying to tell me something. But as Charlie says uh, later on, what's the exact line here as I skip ahead? Charlie says something about, uh, he makes some sort of joke. So much for fate, he says. I hope uh, I'm not equally flip in uh, daring fate to prevent me to complete this episode. But let's uh, certainly continue on here. Um, so anyhow, Jack there uh, standing for the body of Locke, although we don't know it on first viewing. Uh, he pops his last pill and uh, he obviously kind of uh, sadly and filled with regret. Uh, and with that, the flash forward ends. Uh, we then move to Island Jack, who's uh, expositioning Rousseau about how far the radio tower is. And we learn that she hasn't been there since she recorded the message. Everybody caught up? Good. Because, as it turns out, things in this episode are going to move pretty fast. Hello, Jack. We need to talk. With that, we move to the title card, and then Under the Sea, uh, where Mikhail is apparently finishing a moment of silent contemplation. His task, of course, getting ready to kill three people. The ladies make it easier on him. Uh, Bonnie, I believe it is, speechifies about the importance of following orders, being part of a well-oiled machine, doing as Ben says, which uh, is just ironing on top of irony. I think they're all sitting at home kind of gleefully saying, yes, others kill each other. Fantastic. Uh, with that, he promptly takes out Greta first. He nicks Bonnie, who he then stands over, ready to shoot. Luckily, Dez pops out, harpoons him, you know, uh, uh, Moby Dick style, I suppose, and then kills him dead for sure, once again. I'm sure that won't come back to bite anybody, the fact that, you know, he apparently comes back to life all the time. Not a problem. I'm sure a harpoon to the chest is, is going to solve it once and for all. Uh, joking aside, I wonder how many people, the uh, first time, you know, the first time you saw this episode, were you saying, oh my goodness, this guy never dies. You can't just leave him there with a harpoon. You need to tie him up or stick him in the water or, you know, something, something, something. But uh, the the scene basically functions as a quick update. I mean, it does it does move the ball a bit forward, uh, for you know, in terms of Bonnie and Greta exiting the scene, exiting the, the <laughs> their time on the show. But... Um, Again, it just essentially acts as a quick uh, quick little update for that storyline, uh, particularly with Patchy, surely done for. And with that, we return to Moses Jack standing before Ben. Uh, it's an incredibly tense scene, with Ben logically declaring that since Jack killed seven others, Ben can get five minutes in return. I mean, indeed, kind of who can argue that? And you know, Jack certainly can't, and he promises five minutes. With that, we flash forward to Jack hitting up the pharmacy for more pills. Uh, he's clearly both holding in aggression and also somewhat detached from the world. Uh, when viewed for the first time, uh, when taken as a flashback, of course, there isn't much more to say beyond the fact that he's very clearly in need of a fix that isn't coming. The truly sad part, I think, is reserved for us on the return trip. He tries to get more uh, with a prescription from his father, a man who at this point in the show has been dead three years. Uh, it really is Jack scraping the bottom of the barrel. Uh, 
just a theme that they keep hammering in this uh, this first flash forward. With that, we go back to the island, and Ben does a bit of recap about how heavy lies the crown for Ben's past, referring to the purge. And then Ben, in uh, rather classic fashion, when all else fails, when speechifying and lies and manipulation doesn't work, he gives some genuine truth. Let me guess, you've you've got us surrounded, and if I don't do what you say, you're gonna you're gonna kill all my people. No, Jack, you are. <laughs> and how am I gonna do that, Ben? The woman you're traveling with, the one who parachuted onto the island from a helicopter. She's not who she says she is. She's not, huh? No, she's not. Then who is she? She's a representative of some people who have been trying to find this island, Jack. She's one of the bad guys. Oh. I almost forgot you're the... You're the good guys. Jack, listen to me. If you phone her boat, every single living person on this island will be killed. So here's what has to happen. Get that device, the phone she carries with her, and give it to me. I will turn around. We'll go back to my people. You will turn around and go back to your people. I'm not going anywhere. Note, interestingly enough, that Ben says every single living person will die. An interesting nugget, given that uh, we, we can say definitively now that there are, certainly are dead people inhabiting the island. If not uh, uber spirits like Jacob, then certainly the, uh, the damned who cannot leave uh, the future Michaels of the world, if you will. Uh, and indeed, it's yet another thing which Ben has said that's 100% true. Naomi, the freighter people, and Widmore uh, do indeed present a huge threat to the island. Uh, and a threat that we have seen coming, as I've said in previous episodes of the podcast. There's the Widmore balloon. Uh, there's, you know, particularly when, when the entire knowledge of Widmore having been on the island uh, uh, is known, then uh, the, the power of his, of his threat certainly is better known. Now, of course, this is not Ben's only plan. He has a backup plan. When Jack tells him no, Ben goes to plan B, ready to kill Jin, Saeed, and Bernard. It's masterful manipulation out of Ben. No surprise there. Uh, when Jack threatens to break Ben's neck, Ben quickly tells Tom on the radio to shoot the three unless Ben's voice is heard in 60 seconds. Jack is clearly torn at this. Uh, though reaffirms his dedication to getting everyone off the island, implying that he's willing to sacrifice a few lambs along the way. Uh, and it's an ironic statement when we understand the flash-forwards, and it's doubled when Ben recounts Jack's empty life at home, dead father, divorced wife, and you know, living only for a chance to fix things at the hospital. Uh, really watching this episode on repeat viewing, uh, you know, what is he returning to? He's returning to this awful future, if one can return to an awful future. Uh, Jack, of course, does not give in, and the countdown comes. It's 20 seconds now. Just get me the phone, Jack. No. 10 seconds. Bring me the phone. No. I'm not bluffing. I won't Five, do it! Four, three. No.
What is Jack's reaction? Well, I suppose you can see it coming. I'm so sorry, Jack. Jack, of course, proceeds to once again give Ben one hell of a beating. Poor Ben always left a mess from his best laid plans. One more hit. There we go. And uh, after that, Jack radios Tom to reaffirm that they're going to the radio tower. Then Ben will be killed. It's an interesting story decision that we're left hanging in the wind over Jin, Said, and Bernard. Clearly, uh, the, the show's intention is for us to be squirming in our seats. Are they dead? Aren't they? We haven't seen a body, but everyone follows Ben's orders, right? Wondering, we then return under the sea, where Charlie spells it out to Bonnie that Ben clearly ordered her death, speaking of Ben's orders. Uh, then she nicely spills the code, a string of numbers which, she then further adds, is the tune to Good Vibrations. This uh, indeed had me thinking about uh, Battlestar Galactica, which uh, used All Along the Watchtower as a key musical motif, and indeed, uh, well, a key, a key part to the series. I'll leave it at that if you haven't seen it. Uh, anyhow, <laughs> enough about Battlestar Galactica. We'll save that for looking back at Battlestar Galactica coming <laughs> who knows when. Anyhow, then the show... Despite all its pace, it just stops everything, showing that the middle of an episode is never too early to ask us to cry. Alex. This is your mother. Danielle frames her daughter's face with her hands, and it really is just an incredibly reaffirming moment in the series. Sometimes some good does come along, despite all the trouble and the efforts and the heartache and disappointment. My only complaint is that they don't hold on to this moment for longer. Uh, but I suppose there's lots of story to tell. It's well, oh, there you go, mother and daughter working together. I think it's just a product of you know being boxed into. Uh, you know, what must fit into these 42 minutes or the 84 minutes total that you have for the two-hour finale and uh, with, you know, many masters to serve in this episode. Uh, with that, Jack goes off by himself. Uh, I see my notes. I have Jack, comma, off by himself. I'm glad I didn't quite read it like that. Um, anyhow, Jack alone. Uh, Kate then comes along uh, and he admits to Kate that Jin, Saeed, and Bernard are dead, which I'm sure is also meant to further have us questioning, are they really dead? Uh, he rightly goes into damage control mode, tell no one, not Rose, not Sun. Uh, and why not kill Ben for it, for all of this? Because Jack wants Ben to see them get off the island, then kill him, in a rather juicy moment. There's lots of moments in this episode which I would describe as, you know, heck yeah, or other variations therein. Uh, certainly that's one of them. Yeah, let's see Ben get it. Uh, the the beach, you know, Hurley as beach savior. When that comes, that's heck yeah, Saeed. And what he does in that scene, which I'm certainly getting ahead of myself here, but there's many many moments where it's like, yeah, score one for the good guys, which of course you know is its own irony, given that uh, at the end of the episode, you know, having said, oh look, the good guys are going to win and get off the island, we then see that there's a heavy price to pay for that. Anyhow, the show then takes us from the raw and the low 
to give us some more hope. Tom explaining that Ben had gone nuts and that they were right to put three bullets in the sand. And with that, the camera swings to reveal our boys are still alive. Yippee! And perhaps help is on the way. Uh, as we move to a, a long shot of the blonde wonders, Sawyer and Juliet, watching from afar. Although they admit that they are outmatched, underprepared, and with little chance of hope. Right? Goofy Hurley tune is now hard-edged and serious. It's revenge Hurley style. Sawyer keeps him in the bus, collecting a gun, and we have a moment to reflect on how far we've come from the opening episodes of the show. Who were the two great uh, uh, antagonists to each other? Of course, it was Saeed and Sawyer. Uh, Now, (laughs) indeed, we see how far we've come. Sawyer distracts another, and Saeed, still bound and gagged, trips the other, puts his feet around the other's neck, and snaps it, just like that. There's a look shared between the two. Job well done, partner. Job well done. And speaking of jobs, Tom is the only one left, and Sawyer has a gun and a job to do. Okay. I give up. for taking the kid off the raft. Duty was over. He surrendered. I didn't believe him. It's got a hard edge to it, but consider that account taken care of, debt paid, promise made in that, that line where Tom, then the bearded wonder, had said, this is our island, the promise Sawyer made, that, uh, well, that Tom would pay for what he did. Well, now he's paid for it. With that, we go to act to an act break, as you heard, then come back in flash forward, with Jack sneaking about uh, in order to re-up his oxycodone, which, as it turns out, he's trying to take from a storeroom in the hospital. Uh, the scene continues to be desperate and sad, and Matthew Fox is acting as a glassy-eyed stoned failure. Really, is fantastic, but he's caught with his hand in the cookie jar, and then things go from bad to worse. Let's go to my office, Jack. What? We need to have a talk. Come on. You know, I know that you're you're new around here, so you don't know much about. I know enough. So let's just walk down to my oh, office. If you got something to say to me, you can say it to me. Right here. Will you excuse us, please? Mrs. Arlen, the woman you saved, woke up in recovery about two hours ago. She was in some pain, but highly responsive to the reflex test and entirely lucid. It's great. 
But then she described the series of events that caused her accident. She says she was driving over the bridge when she saw a man standing on top of the railing, about to jump off. She was distracted and lost control of her car. She ran into the media, rolled over, and was hit by the van behind her. So the obvious question here, Jack, is how did you get to that flaming car so fast? What were you doing on that bridge? You know how many years I've worked at this hospital? Do you know anything about me? Do you have any idea what I've been through? How much have you had to drink today, Jack? <laughs> okay, I'll tell you what, you do this. You get my father down here. Get him down here right now. And if I'm drunker than he is, you can fire me. Don't you look at me like that. Don't you pity me. I'm trying to help you. You can't help me! There's just such desperation with Jack there, isn't there? You know, he's clearly there's just this huge, huge uh, weight on his shoulders, a weight that we'll, we'll spend much of season four uh, discovering, you know, the, discovering things about. And further, it's been suggested that Jack asking for his father to come down here uh, is indicative uh, of the fact that he knows his father is dead. Uh, certainly, it's meant to be a fake out to, to first-time viewers uh, to make us continue to wonder when in the flashback chronology this is all taking place. But on the notion that that he's talking about his father coming down here, Allah from heaven, I would disagree with that. Um, you know the the. I disagree that Jack knows that the Christian is dead. I think that Jack is so out of his mind with oxycodone, his addiction pains, his depression, and his grief that he really doesn't know when he is. <laughs> Which, of course, is ironic because we're not meant to know when he is either at the at the moment. Flash forward over, Jack's jungle group is uh, depressively making its way up the hill, only to hear Hurley declare victory on the beachfront, having saved Sawyer, Juliet, Saeed, Jin, and Bernard. Score one for the great protector of the island, eh? And indeed, Hurley repeats it. I saved them all. I think another little clue that uh, Hurley was always on his path to be a savior, a protector, and uh, the, 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 the champion of Jacob, if you will. Uh, it's a supreme moment of joy for the survivors, as well as us viewers, even those of us on the return trip. It's just another moment where you say, heck yeah, scoring for the good guys. And with this, the emotional heart of the episode is then reaffirmed. Claire asking about Charlie, who Hurley supposes is on his way soon. But we know that that isn't true right now in the episode, and we know that it won't be true. I think even first-time viewers would know that as well. We know that in our hearts, though Charlie is getting ready to enter the code, and although he's happily talking with Desmond about the plan that's about to work, that you know his fate is in store. And uh, they, of course, will be teasing us with that. But uh, we end the act. We return with Charlie in that yellow light room, humming good vibrations. How lucky they are to have a musician in the group. Job easily dispensed with turning off the blocker. Charlie remarks, so much for fate. And is about to walk out of the room. 
but things suddenly get good, then bad, then worse. Yes. Yes, I can hear Charlie, uh, uh, Charlie Pace, I'm a survivor of flight 815, Oceanic, flight 815. Where are you? We're on an island, we're alive. An island? We're where? What's the location? I don't know. Who's this? This is Penelope. Penelope Whitmore. How did you get this frequency? Desmond! He's here, he's with me. Is he okay? He's brilliant. Hey, are you on the boat? What boat? Your boat. 80 miles offshore. Uh, Naomi, parachutist. I'm not on a boat. Who's Naomi? With that rather ominous question, Desmond sees that Mikhail is gone, and then fate definitely intervenes. of course has swam out he has his grenade and looks like Desmond's prophecy will indeed come true tough to watch it's meant to be of course though on a certain level we knew it was going to happen even as first-time viewers didn't we and what of course is interesting is that the most frail and weak character weak internally from the start of the show has now really come full circle he's someone who has chose to bravely face uh, his end and uh, to really put everyone on his back and carry them what he, you know, to what he hopes is rescue, uh, and indeed he seems brave and calm before appearing to panic. But as we'll see, it isn't the panic to overcome fate. It isn't the panic to somehow avoid that water that's rushing in. Uh, it's the panic to do one last good thing. He of course, takes out that marker, the marker with which he wrote his list of greatest hits. Maybe he adds one more to there. I think the, the hit that we remember best of all, the greatest of all hits, not Penny's boat. He holds his hand up long enough to make sure that Desmond has read the message. Then he pushes himself away into the water, embracing his end. He crosses himself. And that, for Charlie, it's all over. What's the matter? I don't know. I think he's just a bit scared. Hard to blame him. What is it? What's your boyfriend's name? The rock star who swam down to the station. Charlie, why? 
Charlie just got us rescued. With that, the, the act ends. We need the act break there. I think it's one of the one of the rare times where uh, the commercial-free version doesn't quite do it justice. And as we wipe away our tears, Naomi declares, of course, the phone is working, though it still is blocked by Rousseau's signal. No matter, says Rousseau, we're here. You know, it's fitting, given that in the pilot episode, we first heard this signal that we're about to hear one more time, the French woman's signal. And that scene, when we first heard it, that scene ended with Charlie's line, guys, where are we? We know a lot more uh, in order to answer that question now. We're able to see the source of the signal. Uh, it's shown with a beautiful, beautiful helicopter shot. The survivors coming up to the top of the hill, the trees opening up to the, the crest of the hill, the large tower. Certainly it's a satisfying moment after these uh, 72 episodes to, to take us to, uh, to the end of this signal. Uh, Jack, Rousseau, Alex, and Naomi enter the little radio room, if, if it can be called that. And uh, the story certainly pauses here. It's having earned a moment for Rousseau to reflect that she was last in this room 16 years ago. Three days, we are told, before Alex was born. With that, the signal turned off. Naomi steps out finally to make that call for help, the call that we've been dreaming about for 72 episodes. It's gonna work. It's happening. We're gonna get off of this island. We'll celebrate when we're home. No, you won't, Jack. Jack! I know you think you're saving your people, but you need to stop this. It's a mistake. The mistake was listening to you. This will be your last chance, Jack. I'm telling you, making that call is the beginning of the end. I've got it. I've got a signal. Jack, please, you don't know what you're doing. I know exactly what I'm doing. Making that call is the beginning of the end, uh, Jack is told. Uh, it's ironic, given that the next episode will be entitled just that. Writers flourish, perhaps. Uh, the end of the clip, of course, is Naomi being hit with a knife, and in a great little camera move, kudos to director Jack Bender, she falls in, in, in one shot. She falls to reveal the post-throw lock. You know, it's kind of hand half open. You can see that the arm has arced down. Uh, so post-throw lock, now doing the bidding of who? certainly not quite clear to me it's you know to me it's clear to you it's clear it certainly is uh smoky doing his manipulations this way and that uh Locke tells everyone to get back just as the phone starts to ring and it's tension galore all around it's also a supremely well-timed uh portion of the episode if you're a first-time viewer there are about eight minutes left probably seven without the credits is that enough time for a helicopter to be called? For Claire and Aaron to get in it as it was foretold? Was Charlie's sacrifice worth it? The show rightly milks that tension for all it's worth. But the moment of decision does indeed come. Please, put the phone down. No. You're done keeping me on this island. I will 
kill you if I have to. Then do it, John. Jack. My name's Jack Shepard. Are you... Are you on the boat, the freighter? How'd you get this channel? Naomi. Naomi told us about your search team, about the boat. Naomi? You found her? Where is she? Who are you? I'm one of the survivors of Oceanic Flight 815. Can you get a fix on our location? Hell yeah, we can. Sit tight. We'll be right there. It's such a relieving moment now. The call home that we've been hoping for all this time. Even though we return trippers know it isn't real, it's just it still is a wonderful moment to just have the hope, to see it on their faces, to see the happiness and and uh, the belief that this terrible uh, chapter in their lives is coming to an end. Uh, I suppose that's a bit of dark irony as well, given that uh, for some of them, you know, that end is, is a long way off. Well, certainly for all of them, that's not like that helicopter is about to come anytime soon. Um, with that, we flash forward. Speaking of wonderful baskets of hope, we flash forward to a place of little hope. Despondent Jack, his dirty apartment with, tellingly, a shot of maps and a ruler. He's clearly searching for something. What it is, you know, we can... Uh, hardly imagine as first-time viewers uh, as we head to a scene that was shot in outright secret a handful of days before the episode was aired. It, of course, moves from his apartment to wanting to meet that mysterious person on the other end of the phone uh, in order to discuss something. Now, interestingly, in the construction of this episode, you would think that they would go back one more time to the island story, but no, no, no. As I said last week, you can almost make the argument that the island story is in flashback. Uh, and in, indeed, I think most of our attention in retrospect is meant to be on this weird, weird world of the future where Jack and Kate and perhaps others are somehow back and who has been left and who is there. Uh, and indeed, this is the scene that profoundly reorders the direction of the show. As Kate pulls up, I know my brain was overloading the first time I saw this episode. But they never met before the plane crash, and she looks so stable, not on the run. At least for me, we almost couldn't conceive what was being suggested, that, that this was in the future. Hey. Hey. Saw you on the news. Still pulling people out of burning wreckage, huh? Old habits. You look terrible. <laughs> Thanks. Why did you call me Jack? I was hoping that you'd heard. 
that maybe you'd go to the funeral. Why would I go to the funeral? Been flying a lot. What? Yeah, the golden pass that they gave us. I, I've been using it every Friday night. I fly from L.A. to Tokyo or Singapore or Sydney. <laughs> and then I, I get off and I have a drink and then I fly home. Why? Because I want it to crash, Kate. I don't care about anybody else on board. Every little bump we hit or turbulence, I mean, I, I actually close my eyes and I pray that I can get back. We made a mistake. I have to go. He's going to be wondering where I am. We were not supposed to leave. Yes, we were. You know, I think it's with the line, I pray I can get back, that we start to accept that what has been sold to us here. Uh, but we really need that final line. Sure, future seeds are being planted when Kate says, he'll wonder why I'm gone, but it's all in that final line. We have to go back, Kate. Like that, The Rocky Season 3 ends like a champion, having changed the show, having blown our minds, and having reset the clock in terms of mysteries. And I think that's the biggest success of this episode. We're back to where we started as viewers. Who are these people and how did they get here? The people will be the Oceanic Six and those who aren't them, which is to say, you know, who are these people that, you know, who made it home and who did not? And how? What's the why? What are the circumstances? Uh, and of course, the here is going to either be Los Angeles for those who left or, for the, or the island for those who did not. It's to the show's credit that they end in Flash Forward as well, leaving the freighter story for another day, or as the season will go, <laughs> another bunch of days. Uh, sure, there might have been time for that happy helicopter to come and take them away, but... It's better here. We're now left wondering, do we, you know, do we still want that happy helicopter to come? And, and you know, if it's going to end with such, such sadness and strife and a dead body in Los Angeles. 
and it really is one of the it's one of the one of the great cliffhangers of the show not just because it knocks you down with this uh, notion of a flash forward but just uh just the drama there that you know how does jack go from this square-jawed uh imperfect but well-meaning leader to to somebody who's so so lost back in back in the real world and with that the season is done let's now take a look at lostpedia for the little bits and pieces i've missed there's some good little uh little tidbits here they note of course that this is tom's last living appearance he appears in flashbacks during season four Lostpedia also says that among the newspaper in Jack's apartment is the Honolulu Advertiser, the morning paper in Oahu, uh, uh, while the afternoon paper is the Honolulu Star Bulletin. So there you go. Staying in Jack's apartment, Lostpedia also tells us that there is a partially visible world map in the lower left-hand corner of the frame in the shot with the maps, lamp, pill, bottle, liquor bottle, ruler, and compass right before Jack gets a call. This map shows strings attached to push pins in different locations of the Americas, including what looks like the north of Brazil, somewhere near the U.S.-Mexico border on the Gulf of Mexico, uh, and one in the southeast, uh, southeastern U.S., one in Canada, etc. All the strings lead out of frame to an unseen point west of the Americas in the Atlantic Ocean. Lostpedia also says penultimately uh, that there was a continuity error uh, they uh, involving removing the cartridge from the player, this in the radio tower, uh, and indeed removing that cartridge would cease the transmission, but the transmitter would still be broadcasting dead air with the same amount of interference. However, they then note, rest assured, that this was corrected on the DVD, where the red button is pushed before the cartridge is removed. And last but not least, I think a, a fitting way to end the bit from Lostpedia when Charlie has his hand pressed up against the glass, the message not Penny's boat is rewritten in a different handwriting after the camera cut from Charlie to Desmond and back to Charlie. Yes, it does change. I think it does slightly take the viewer out of out of uh, the scene for a moment, but certainly the, the loss of Charlie. Loss of Charlie overwhelms us in that moment. And uh, what a, on that sad note, I suppose we will uh, now... Have, uh, you know, have fully concluded Season 3. Let's look ahead to next week. Next week, we'll take a look back at Season 3 and certainly look ahead to Season 4. A little kind of retrospective, a way to step back and really uh, really take take measure of things. It'll also be the, uh, the last week of, uh, of this season's uh, uh, intro music. I'll have to hop on iTunes, try and find a new... Michael Giacchino track, not from Lost, that's, that suits us. I know I have a few preliminary uh, ideas. If you have any suggestions, you can feel free to share those. Indeed, the best way to get in touch with me is on Twitter, where I'm looking back Lost. You can call the listener line, 732-707-1815. You can send an email to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com. And you can leave a message on the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com. So with that... Thank you very much for listening. Uh, I, for one, am glad to have season three behind me. Although certainly, uh, somewhere you know, for, from some point in the middle of the season forward, uh, it uh, certainly picked up steam. Uh, it's had its ups, it's had its downs, but it ended on one of the, the great high notes. And uh, well, we'll talk a little bit. Uh, we'll 
talk a little bit more next week about uh, that and some other things. And then in due course, for too long, hop straight into season four, the shortest season of them all, the strike-shortened season. Uh, season that uh, where we almost lost Richard, or rather Nestor Carbonell, then got him back just in time. We'll discuss that and many more things next week. So thank you everyone for listening. As always, it's always great fun to get in touch with you. I'm glad I was able to overcome my technical difficulties to get back on the straight and narrow path of Lost. And I'll talk to you all again next week when we uh, talk Season 4. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.